Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octonom Verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Michael Osterlink has been exploring the relationship between post-commissional living, transformational leadership, and optimal health his entire life. His interests of human growth and the personal development began when he was nine and was working with psychotherapist Pat Lawson, learning biofeedback, meditation, and guided imagery. Now, I'm reading off of his microosterlink.com about me bio. There is so much in here. He's been doing this stuff since the late 90s. He's got his master's degree at that point, transformational counseling psychology. But I could go on and show you all of these accolades, but the other parts that are even more impressive to me are this ability for him to have done the Kokoro event in, in 2010, which is 52 plus hours of the seal fit event where there's no sleep. It's all about pushing on the gas to see what you're capable of. He was also master coach and head instructor for SEAL FIT's Unbeatable Mind Academy and worked closely with former Navy SEAL commander Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind's online accelerated learning program. There is so much in here. So instead of trying to spend 20 minutes reading his entire accolades, I'm just going to get the man on here and we're going to deep dive in. Thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate your time. and. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. It's great to be on. So cool that you reached out to me and we're engaging in this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Well, JC Glick, I saw you guys working together. And if you work with him, he only works with quality people. He only wants to be associated with quality people. And on LinkedIn, for those of you that weren't tracking, you have this, what were they resilience challenges that you were doing during the day? Is that what you guys were bringing together? Yeah. So every Monday we drop, we call it JC and Mo, Mo, Michael Ostrink, my, my initials, yes. Yes. Uh, critical challenge. And so yes. they're a mixture of physical ones and then psycho-spiritual, psycho-emotional ones as well. So we dropped two so far. We just literally just launched a couple weeks ago. The first one was actually the, the most recent one we just did was called Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. And the first one we did is Crucial Conversations. Crucial Conversations just literally like teaching you to think about what conversations do you need to have with important people in your life, spouse, partner, workmate that you're afraid of doing, you've been putting off for a long time. Yes. Developing the awareness of like how to do it well. And then the mirror, mirror on the wall, which is just released Monday is if there are traits in other people that you don't like, look at it in the mirror and ask yourself, do I possess an yes. ask to that trait at least? Some of the exercises are going to be more like kick your ass and get on and do like 50 this, 50 that, 50 that. You know, so it's a lot of physical stuff too, but the first two are more psychologically oriented. And that's so important. I mean, having that Jungian idea to, to see where's the shadow, where's the darkness, what am I not acknowledging? How is this going to ambush me later in the future? How am I reinforcing that? All, all those things are tremendous. And for those that don't know, tell people about what Kokoro is and yeah. what some of your takeaways were from the yeah, That's awesome. So actually, I'll step back. And actually, I did the three-week soft academy leading up to Kokoro. Wow. 
Three Weeks Off Academy is a training program Commander Mark Devine created to train young men who want to go to Navy Special Warfare. I think he had about an 80% success rate of people go through that program who make it through BUDS. Yeah. I was 39. I wasn't going anywhere, but I did it anyways. And you know, it was closer to a month, but just say it's three weeks. I, I trained with the most amazing young men, and all of them that I trained with are now SEALs. Like These are just top quality young men in their early 20s. I was the old dude. But yep. uh, we trained 12, 14 hours a day. Then on occasion, we would be woken up at 1 o'clock in the morning to go do crazy shit in the ocean. Well, that's good. Yep. <laughs> uh, we finished Thursday night, and then Friday we started Kokoro Camp. And Kokoro means indomitable spirit, and is about 52 to 53 to 54 hours. Uh, at the time we did it, no sleep. You're not allowed to sleep. You, you slept. You got punished. And I'll, I'll share a funny story about that. <laughs> and you literally train. You go from one evolution to the other. You're in the ocean. You're on the beach. You're on the grinder. You're in the mountains. I mean, except for eating, you, you're training, 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 training. And it was amazing because I did it. Rogue Fitness came and videotaped our whole Kokoro camp. Wow. Yeah, because we had CrossFit athletes with us. And it was amazing because, like, you know, I was in damn good shape for me, but CrossFit athletes are in, like, they're in a, another world, right? Yes. Yes. But a lesson I learned watching them, because some of them dropped out, is that, and they're in amazing shape, but it won't, it's, it's different to do prescribed exercise for a very particular period of time that you know the rules, you know exactly what you're supposed to do from one thing to the other. Kokoro camp is completely not that. I mean, you'll have two seal cadre giving you different instructions. And you're like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? Like, <laughs> you know? And you got the water hose going so you can barely hear what's going on. And you're just being flooded with information. The intent is to put you under immense amount of stress. Absolutely. To see if you have emotional resilience, mental toughness, you're able to keep your center and work as a boat crew. And I'll share this story. Um, I, I don't know if you saw my post on LinkedIn, but a um, good friend of mine passed uh, last Friday. Dan Cirillo is a former SEAL. I worked for him at Spartan 7. I, I coach for his, him and his program, but he, he actually trained me up for three weeks off academy programs. So I've known him for about 15 years. He, wow. he programmed me. Uh, big loss to the SEAL community. He's an amazing man. Big thanks to me. Love the guy. SEAL feel it. I mean, literally just died last week. But I, I want to share, this will give you some insight, both into him, because I love the guy, but insight into like what the intent of Kokoro Camp is and how it's different than many other physical activities. So because he trained me up, I didn't realize this, but he had higher expectations of me than all the rest. And I'm like, I didn't know that going in. I thought, oh, you like me. So like, like cool, like you'd be nicer to me, but like, it's completely the exact opposite. Yeah. So 40 hours in, and 40 hours in is like, hey, we've already done Murph. We've done Cindy, the CrossFit workouts. You know, we've right. been in the ocean. We've done, we, we've done the law of PT. We've done PT, yeah. thousands of push-ups and sit-ups. And, you know, 40 hours in is a long time. And he walks up to me. He's like, Australink, I heard you fell asleep. And I hadn't, right? Because if you fall asleep back then, you get punished and your boat crew gets punished. And there's no fucking way I was going to fall asleep. Right. But I said, no, Coach Rill, I didn't fall asleep. And he says, are you calling me a liar? And right then and there, I'm like, oh God, like I can't win. Yep. Because if I call him a liar, I get punished. <laughs> I say I fell asleep, which I didn't, me and my boat crew get punished. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm effed. Right. So I just sat there waiting for the punishment. Right. The first punishment was pretty, just more emotional than anything. He lined up all my fellow students and all those SEALs 
And one by one, I have to go in front of them and apologize for falling asleep, which, which effing suck because I didn't fall asleep. But okay, you know, embrace the suck. Mm-hmm. Boom, 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 boom. I'm like, okay, that's, that's it was emotionally hard, but not too bad. Okay, I can handle that. Next thing I know, he says, hey, get on the grinder and start doing four count leg lifts. Yep. And because I, was, I had a boat crew of the guys that did the three weeks off academy, they all joined me. And he's like, no, no, no. He Australian does it on his own. So I'm just doing it. And these guys got a break. Like, <laughs> it was like probably nice for them. And I'm just doing it for about a half an hour. And half an hour of four count leg lifts is a bitch in and of itself. After 40 hours of training, it's even more of a bitch. But you just embrace the suck. You're like, there's nothing you can do. Like, that's just what you do. Yes. It's over. I'm like, okay, punishment, lesson learned. Cool. I can move on. I thought. Go to the ocean. Go to the beach. We're doing beach evolutions. And he walks up to me and goes, Stingray. Now, Stingray was my nickname. Mm. Because unfortunately, I got stung twice by Stingrays <laughs> on a Thursday and a Tuesday doing the Three Self Academy. And I can tell you that story, if you're interested, is the most painful thing ever. But I'll tell you that later if you want to circle back. But of course, Stingray, put on that weight vest. I'm like, put on the weight vest. He goes, go neck deep in the ocean and think about what you did wrong. I'm like, fuck. So I go out in the ocean and literally, you know, if you can think about it, the only thing I could do is calf races. Yes, my head over, uh, above water, but you have to time with the ocean. So time to run, I fall forward with the weight vest, I'm drowned. Time to run, I fall backwards. So, you know, it's like, I'm just doing this, doing this for half an hour. Calls me back in, punishment's done. But that's the point. Like he showed me what I'm capable of. And in the ocean evolution, I said to myself, I'll die before I quit. <laughs> I will die before I quit. Now it's kind of silly for a civilian in a non-combat situation to do that. But that was that was my fucking mentality. I was like, I'll die before I quit. And with the four count leg list, I'm like, this embrace the suck. And there, there's no winning. Like I can't talk my way out of it. You know, it's like just you you do it or you quit. And I'm not quitting. And those are the kind of the big lessons besides the teamwork. Teamwork is huge as part of Cobra Camp that I took away from it. And I'll tell you another lesson, two other lessons I took, one from the Kokoro camp and one from the three weeks off academy. They do a lot of spraying of the hoses on you. You're doing push-ups, you're doing sit-ups, and you're just spraying and spraying and spraying you. And I have asthma. So like, wow. that scares a shed of me, not being able to breathe, period, but then I'm in the water. And there's actually a picture, like, I, I don't know, the guy smiled and, and his name is Brad McLeod, he's dumping water in me or something like that, and there's a picture of it. And I stopped fighting it. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I stopped panicking. I'm just going to fucking accept whatever it is. And the minute I did, he stopped because he saw that I got it. Ooh. And that was just a lesson of surrender. Yeah. And then I had another during the three weeks off academy, Mark Devine, who's a big dude. He was my, we, we were fought. We, we did a lot of hand in combat. And one of the exercises was in the ocean where he holds you down for a minute and you have to fight your way up. And one of the reasons, not all the reasons, one of the reasons I chose to do this program with SEALs is because I had a water fear of drowning just with the asthma. Like, I don't like not breathing. It's just kind of ingrained in me. Of course. And he held me down for a minute. He's strong as fuck. So, like, trying to fight, fight my way up. But, you know, I made it up and it was successful. But there are many opportunities like that just to get through my fears and overcome them. And Coco Camp and Three Soft Academy were, like, awesome opportunities to see what I'm capable of uh, 20 times more than I thought and to overcome some, you know, pretty ingrained fears of mine. I love that lesson because that capitulation, that just acceptance, yeah. the faster we get through those five steps, the faster we go through denial, 
anger, bargaining, right? <laughs> Depression, and then acceptance, especially uh, from a tactical level, like from a martial standpoint, the faster I can get to like the reality, the sooner I can attack, the sooner I can counter, the faster I can begin to respond. Yeah. But if I'm in this place, I'm like, why the fuck is this going on? What am I doing? I'm literally putting the brakes on when I should be accelerating. And here's the other part. The beauty of that capitulation is there's this shift. There is this change in us from a neurological standpoint. Our hormonal cascade changes. And now we say, now what? With yeah. my story, yeah, um, that's what it was. I For four months, I'm paralyzed from the neck down. And I'm a victim. And I'm mad. And this isn't fair. And why is this happening? And I've done everything right. And I'm trying to serve my country. And I've been a good person. I'm 40. And I don't have anything to to show for my life. I put all my eggs in this basket and that's taken from me. Once I finally got to that place of understanding that anger wasn't helping me, it was literally inhibiting my capacity to breathe correctly, to think correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. To, to control anything that I had control over, which I didn't think I had much, but once I started actually leaning into that and I embraced it and said, okay, this is a gift. What am I trying to learn? What am I missing? What am I trying to avoid with my anxiety around this thing that I'm not willing to accept? And here's the thing. You can accept it now to capitulate, but it's this iteration of it. And now once you've done that, you can accept what's going on. And now you can move forward because there's no more bargaining. There's no more hesitation. You're fully committed to moving forward. And now when you have no other choice, the choice is simple. I'm curious for you, like when you had that shift, huge one, like physical limitation, huge one. Like how did that show up other areas of your life? For me, once the, I actually accepted it and understood that I was just grateful that I wasn't in Afghanistan, that I didn't have a team with me because for one man that's injured, it takes two men to pull him to safety. So if we'd have actually been out there outside the wire, when that happened, my team would have been compromised. Another team would have had to cover down. A Chinook would have had to come in. And when I was just like, wow, I'm lucky. Not that I'm lucky, but I'm lucky that nobody else is hurt. Yeah, yeah. That was genuine gratitude for me because gratitude is when you're happy that it happened, but you don't get any immediate benefit from it, in my opinion. And that's what helped me, knowing that nobody else is hurt. Nice. I started getting movement back in my fingers, my left hand at that point. But what's interesting is I started getting that, that hubris, that hmm. soldier, warrior mentality. See, I knew I could do it. They told me I flat on the table. If I can flatline and come back, I can overcome this. I'll walk this off, this paralysis thing. But once that happened, I started slowly regressing. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I went back. So yeah. within two weeks, I'm back to square one. So for me, I got through all of the five stages again. And finally, yeah. I say, listen, this is what worked before. I'm taking my expectation out of it. If this is what my life is, if this is the reality, then what can I do right now? If this is as good as it ever gets, how can I live? And I just came from that place of acceptance, that radical acceptance. And then finally, I slowly got more and more fully recovered, a year and a half occupational physical therapy. And I've just never allowed myself the luxury of trying to go back to that place of saying, see, I could do this. See, I could do that. That's what keeps me moving forward. And it also keeps me tethered to that adversity. It keeps me tethered with the physicality to make me understand this is a celebration. When I was in that bed, I would have given anything to have a 65 pound ruck on and tried to run five miles, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's where the shift was for me. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. Bless you for like, you know, 
seeing that going through it a couple of times, you know, good for you. Well, and it was that 40 years of, I've been doing martial arts since I was 12. So you've done martial arts. You've got many accolades in that. And and we understand that martial arts, the beauty of it is they don't teach you the philosophy separately. And then the art, it's all baked in. Yeah. So if your ego's in the way, you're going to have an upper belt, kick your ass. (laughs) If you're not trying hard enough and you're trying to bullshit that instructor, they're going to level up on you to force you to get to that place. And once we're through it, we're like, huh, I didn't know I could do that. Just like with Kokoro for you, right? But when we look back, we understand, look at all these gaps. Look at where I've held back. Look at where I was intentionally, for whatever reason, sabotaging myself to move forward in these capacities. And once we see that, that's why it's the gift. Because now it's like, where else am I holding back? What else am I under-indexing? And frankly, when we embrace our own adversity and overcome it, we empower those around us to do the same thing, just like whether it be a team, a leader of, a, of our company, a CEO, a father, a husband, a son. And that's where the responsibility comes in. And we were talking before about this human resilience and this capacity to really get in there. But you bring up a great point about these, these relationships. So tell us a little bit more about that. Expand on that. Well, I'm going to come in from a very strange angle. That's okay. Go ahead and direct on from there. Correct approach. I love it. Yeah, so um, I'm getting a certificate in pre-imperial natal psychology and health. I'm very interested in in preconception, conception, pregnancy, and birth, like the whole process psychophysiologically, um, and then relationship-wise. I'm I'm trained as a marriage and family therapist, so families matter to me, like you know, really. And um, I'm fascinated by if it's done by how nature intended, not by how Madison Avenue tells us to do parenting. Like if if the baby is born and breastfeeds, for instance, or the baby is brought to the mother's chest, you know, like. We've done for millions of years until like the last 30 years and we do weird things now. And I understand there's some medically necessary things to do separately from what I'm suggesting, but not majority. When the mother brings the baby to the chest, she is co-regulating the baby. Yes. She's using her temperature to help regulate the baby's temperature because the baby doesn't have the capacity to do that. Okay. And just the breastfeeding provides the optimal nutrition for the baby. So just the physical contact is huge to co-regulate. It actually helps the mother regulate herself and it helps the baby to be regulated. So let, let's take that and expand it to just human beings outside of that dynamic. We do that all the time. Like how we show up with people mm-hmm. has an effect on people and how they show up with us has an effect on us. And you can look at it many different ways. Energetically, I mean, the, our fields can be measured three to four feet uh, away from us. If you look at the heart math research, Heart actually projects outward and has an effect on people around you. Just like if you, and you don't have to be woo woo about it. Walking through a room, you can just feel like, feel the energy of someone, right? Like it's palpable. Or you can look at facial expressions are they soured or tightness of the jaw or collapsed shoulders or they're not breathing well. I mean, the posture tells you a lot about the person, even before they open their mouth yes. and the tone and their volume. So, like all those things together have effects on people around you and they can have positive effects or the negative effects. Some of the things I just walked you through. Well, if you walk in and you're thinking, I want to have the positive effect and we have agreements at how we want to relate to one another, you create the conditions for pretty deep co-regulation and increasing resiliency between and inside each of the people, which makes it more likely for them to thrive in whatever environments they find themselves in. It's like, you know, I, I had a buddy of mine who always says, two is one, two is one. It's like, yeah, literally. And, and it could be any relationship. It doesn't have to be a partner, like spouse, but let's just stay with spouses. Mm-hmm. Like two is one. Like if you have 
deep agreements of how you relate to one another, how you communicate, how you touch, how you talk, how you exchange energies in a healthy way. I don't mean in a negative way. Man, it's like you'll be unstoppable. I mean, obviously there are physical things that could stop you, but you know, ultimately you're unstoppable. Like you'll be able to face and deal with whatever life conditions come your way much better than if you're dysregulated as as individuals and, and together as a couple. I love that. And I meet a lot of CEOs, entrepreneurs, leaders, and they worry about that relationship in their company. Yeah. Because they see the direct reflect on the bottom line, but somehow they overlook that with the personal relationships, the relationship with their spouse. Their, their kids, yeah, especially the kids. It's like the kids are strangers and the spouse is just this person that's like, hey, we had dinner, there's something in the fridge. And it's one of these things where it's important for us to have that, not only to be on the same page, but I've seen so many people that say, I'm doing this for my family. But if they were, then they would be treating their family in that capacity that reflects that with, again, like you said, you don't have to say that you love them. They can feel it before you walk in the room almost. So it's the same thing where they're more concerned almost with their ego or they have this philanthropic, you know, metric that they're getting reinforcement from, which those things are fantastic. But if you're claiming you're doing it for your family and then the relationship with your family is not working well, then what you're saying and what you're doing are opposite. And now there's conflict. And now all of a sudden you feel anxiety, you feel unrest, you feel lack of fulfillment. So many times when we're building a company, that's what we're doing for 18 hours. Yeah. And then when we come home, we hope that the family re understands that. But because we're disconnected, yeah. because they feel like every waking hour, the business is more important. Yeah. And it's not their fault, but it's like we have to be able to clean the slate, clear the air, come in, take some ownership and say, listen, I know for the like, last 20 years, this is what I've done. And then what does our body look like? And speaking of like CEOs or entrepreneurs, just entrepreneurs in general. You know, it's not a, even just a disconnection between them and their spouses and their kids, but from themselves. There it and is. Like, you know, and I'm sure you see this all the time. Like, what do you eat? Oh, I barely do. Or I eat crap. When do you sleep? I don't. I don't need to sleep. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Like, <laughs> when do you exercise? Well, I don't. You know, it's like, you know, like, so it's just some basic normal physiological things they can do to benefit themselves for optimizing their capacities to do whatever they're doing as an entrepreneur. They don't even do. But then they're also disconnected from their body. It's like, you know, hey, they have great minds. They're working really well. A little cuckoo, but they're working really well. <laughs> but like, hey, what's going on inside your body? Do you know about your breath? How about like your your gut? Oh, I'm not. I'm not. What does that have to do with anything? Like, well, I would love for you to just notice when you eat what you eat, how it feels. Why? Because you're probably increasing inflammation by the crap you're eating and, and ruining your capacity for your cognition to work really well. And actually reducing your, your chances of being really successful. You know, we, we don't have to go down that path, but like just from being disconnected here, they, they lose out on a lot of innate wisdom and power of the body to help move them forward and to reach their goals, let alone to be happy, healthy, and productive in other areas of life. And so listen to what he just said. If, if something as simple as worrying about your breathing, being concerned about it, looking at vagal tone, looking at how you feel with the emotion. What does your breath do when you feel a certain emotion? Is it vertical breathing? Is it this, again, parasympathetic, sympathetic, all these things. But the most important thing, again, is like you're saying, just to be aware of that. Because if you don't have that awareness, if I don't have self-awareness, how can I have situational awareness to the people around me? How can I have any kind of pragmatic empathy to even give a shit about what this person is feeling, seeing, responding, expecting? If I'm a CEO and I'm in this room and I'm talking about how we're going to do all these things, and I can literally see the room divide, 
but I can't understand why because I can't read the body language because I don't care because I'm feeding my own ego. What am I doing? I'm failing my team. Yeah. Yeah. I'm failing my business and my customer. And if I claim that I'm doing this for my family, who else am I failing? Them. Yeah. In what? Defense of my ego. And, you know, and, and it's funny because I, I listen to him going, yes, yes, yes. I completely agree with everything you just said. And I obviously agree with everything I just said. And it's like, I would suggest like, let's transcend the ego. But just for a moment, let's stick, stick with the ego. Just for egoic reasons, do all the things we're discussing and your ego will explode because you'll be that much more successful. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's it. So if we could give like a quick checklist of like three or four things that they could do to better regulate to get more of that ability to connect with themselves so that they can better connect with their environment, impact in a positive way, and truly help the world if that's what they're trying to do with their business. Can we just go over a few things to kind of check the box to help them? Yeah. So I just walked down my list that I work with my clients on. Stress management. So what do they do in a healthy way? Because drugs, alcohol, television, porn, I don't mean things. Demand avoidance. what, What can you do to manage your stress? And I'll walk through like three different things to think about. One is to change my state. I can meditate. Like, so pick up a meditation practice, five minutes, or, or purchase uh, uh, one of the quantified self uh, biohacking devices like the HeartMath device. HeartMath, I love. I have my clients use them all the time. Or a Muse. Like there's really, if you love tech, there's great tech out, technology out there that can teach you to meditate or gives you some biofeedback to show you how, how you are meditating well. Mm-hmm. And when I say meditation, I'm not talking about the traditional sense of like, what's the nature of reality? What's the nature of my mind? This is more like managing the, the nervous system. Okay. So there's that exercise and exercise doesn't have to be like, I'm going to do CrossFit or, you know, some major physical training. It's like, just move the body in the short run. Like my, for my clients, I want to integrate a training program, but just move the body, go for a walk. Yes. And you can do some of your meetings on the walk with staff or clients. I find uh, the reports I get back is people are much more creative, open, and honest. Absolutely. They, when they're moving. So like, just walk around. You don't have to like go for a long run, just walk. So movement, uh, so breath work or using some of the devices, you know, or meditation, I should say. And there's various breathing practices. <laughs> when I have all my clients do, and this is simple, anyone can do this anytime, is a five to five breath. Five count inhale, two count hold, Five can exhale, do it for two minutes, and it really will change your physiology. It kicks in the kind of moderates the sympathetic act- activation, brings it down, and it just brings more capacity to the free- prefrontal cortex so you can think more clearly. And literally, two to three or four minutes of that is really simple. And then nutrition, like we can get into paleo and keto and vegan and all that stuff like that, but we'll just say a whole foods diet. And then I would, and I work in, I do epigenetics works. I, I teach in the epigenetics academy. So I would suggest getting your epigenetics done to get the testing done and find out what foods are most appropriate for you, for your genetic predispositions. But until you know that, you can basically say, stay away from sugars, stay away from hydrogenated oils, seed oils, you know, just like there's some common sense things. Don't eat McDonald's all the time. Don't Burger King. All the crazy drinks from Starbucks, like, hey, coffee, cool, drink your coffee, but don't, you know, all the sugar added stuff, synthetic additives, the synthetic sugars, like some of this is just common sense. Just remove those things from your diet and then figure out what's right for you as an individual. I love those. And those are something that's actionable. And sleep, like, yeah, you'll sleep when you're dead. No, you're going to be dead sooner because you're not sleeping. I love Kirk Parsley. He's a Navy SEAL medical doctor. He's a sleep expert. And we used to have him come and teach us at SEAL Fit. 
And he would talk about the team guys because they, you know, crazy cycles. Like, you know, they're up all night long operating and then they sleep a little bit during the day and their testosterone is shot and like all their biomarkers are just in a, in a shitter. And it's like, okay, he understands like, hey, if you're operating, you've got to stick to this crazy cycle. When you're not operating, you need to be sleeping. I mean, you literally need seven to nine hours of sleep, depending on how your brain works with sleep. So somewhere in there, you know, and don't compromise that. I think the research shows just one poor night of sleep, you already have some cognitive decline. And I think it's like 72, three days of poor sleep and there's already insulin sensitivities decreased. Like, I mean, those, it's like, holy shit. And, and we're not talking about a day or three or five for most people. We're talking about years. Yeah. No wonder some of these diseases are increasing, you know? So dial in your sleep, stress management, exercise, and movement, just some movement. Eat according to your own genetics if you can get there. But at least just get rid of some of the crap you eat. And watch your drugs. Like, you know, if you need caffeine to wake up or nicotine and you need marijuana or alcohol or a sleeping pill or something at night, that's a problem. Absolutely. You know, and I'm not going to diagnose and assess anyone right now, but you might want to go talk to someone about that and see if there are, at least in the short run, natural ways to increase your capacities while you dial in all these other things to help you sleep at night and wake up in the morning without the need for the stimulants yeah. and the depressants at night. So the first thing is like that. Let's just manage ourselves. The second piece is like when you are stressed, like you're literally in a stressful situation, you can do one of two things. Well, you can manage yourself. Like I can do my breath. I'm going to relax. I'm going to think more clearly. But you can see if you can change the situation. Can't always change the situation. But like, give us some thought. Like this situation is causing me stress, right? Can I change the situation no longer? And I do this because... We have responsibility with the stress. It doesn't really cause stress. We just, that's our reaction to it. But yeah, let's change that situation. Let's change us. And the third thing I always talk about is like, okay, you can't change the situation. You can start to learn to manage yourself, but maybe you need to change how you think about the situation. And I give the, my favorite example. I, I had a client who traveled three weeks out of the month. Mm. After years of this, like, I'm so tired of traveling and it's so stressful. It's, you know, it's killing me. But he had to do it for work and he loved his job, so he's going to continue doing it. So I said, why don't we change your mindset? Instead of not looking forward to the travel because it's stressful, why don't you look at each travel period as an opportunity for a new adventure? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wasn't just as simple as saying that. It's like, oh my God, everything is an adventure. Everything's great. It took him some time to really sit with that. But what he started doing is like, he would go to new places and go, wait, I can go there a couple hours earlier, a day early and, and like visit and do stuff there. Cause I'm already in this amazing environment. I don't just have to go in for work, barely sleep, fly to the, you know. So he started like having a little bit of fun and adventures in between his work. And then like one time he said he, he took one of his clients to yoga. Like, really? I was like, yeah. He says, I just think outside the box. I'm like, well, why not? I'll ask them if they're interested in yoga. And then they were. So they did yoga together. So it's like you can think out of the box, makes it a little bit more playful and fun and make it an adventure. So, you, so it's no longer a stressful situation. It's a fun, playful, adventuresome situation. So those are kind of three ways I think about stress. I love that. And like you said, that's this ability to, to have curiosity, to have the courage to be curious about this and say, no bullshit. What's stopping me from being able to get there a day early? What's stopping me from being there a day later? What's stopping me from doing all these other amazing things? And back to the sympathetic and parasympathetic, I think that people, they just see it as one or the other, but what they don't understand is 
if we're in this constant sympathetic stimuli, this fight or flight thing, what happens is there is this overcompensation from a parasympathetic capacity. If you're not just, like you said, you've got caffeine and now you're just running through the wall. And then by 12 after in the afternoon, you're just like, you're like, I, I need another cup of coffee or I need to go do this. And they don't understand that that is your body desperately trying to regulate. It's not bad. There is something wrong, but more to the idea of just respect your body. If you would listen to it, if you'd be connected to it, you understand why does this always seem to happen right around 12 o'clock? Or why is it that when I eat this, this shitty processed food at one o'clock, I'm just wrecked until almost four and then I'm off of work at five. So I'm just not worth anything until from eight until noon, I, I have some productivity. So there's so yeah. much stuff there, right? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And I don't like pathologize things. I just talk about a dynamic homeostasis. Like, listen to your body. You are tired for a reason. You're energized for a reason. And there are costs to what you do. So I, I do a lot of energy work. I don't mean hands-on energy work, but like I do that too. But it's more like, what is your natural energetic flows? So I have clients kind of track their natural energetic flows in a day, in a week, in a month, seasonally, because it changes from seasons to seasons. And I say, when are you good at doing certain activities? Rote learning, creative thinking, social engagement, you know, physical training, like all the things that are important to them. What are the best times of the day to do those things? And we have obligations. We can't always organize our day perfectly, but we can to a certain extent. And I say, if you need, let's just say like you have to do a road learning type of activity and you're usually good at it for 60 minutes and then like you lose focus, but you have a project due, like, you know, it's, you know, so you have to do it for like three hours. Well, okay, cool. There are exercises that I can teach you. There are biohacking things you could do to increase your capacity to go from 60 minutes to, to three hours. There's a cost to that. Just to the nervous system, to the brain. Right. So you need to recognize that and build in recovery on the other side. And it's the same like with Kokoro. Like, hey, shit, if you're not sleeping for 50 hours, there's a cost to that. You better sleep when you get home, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> and after training for the four, almost four weeks and then the Kokoro camp, like the last thing I was going to do for the first week is like lift weights. I'm like, nah, my body was beaten up. I needed to recover. I need to get massages. I need to hydrate. I need amazing nutrition, you know, that kind of stuff. And slow movement, yoga, not CrossFit workouts. <laughs> yeah, the, for those that don't know, after buds, once they've gone through hell week, they give them a walk week, they call it, which mm -hmm. is that it's sort of active recovery because they don't want these guys to just, you know, not be doing anything. But it needs to be this idea of, listen, our bodies were designed, we're bipedal, we should be moving around, and this will help with some of the inflammation, some of the body's capacity to heal itself. And it's so interesting because when we see how all these things, when I work with clients, I have these five circles. When I was in chiropractic school, I didn't get my doctorate, but I was in chiropractic school leading up to joining the military. And it's this idea of understanding the relationships, the physicality, our business, our, our monetary capacities, our own edification, what we're putting into our brains. More importantly, are we actually implementing it? And then the spiritual component, whatever that is for them. And they all overlap in this Venn diagram of our existence in this moment. And we can see how they are all predicated and then reinforced by the others in many ways. So being aware of these, these small areas that don't seem like they're significant or, you know, this is something that has to be done here. Even with the sleeping, like you said, there's multiple chronotypes. There's multiple times in our life when sleeping will change as well. Correct. So yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you have a, a new baby in the house, your sleep's going to change. But once that's adapted, now your body will adapt to that once you understand what it is. And again, back to what you're saying, every writer that I know that's, that's worth their salt, again, Robert Greene, Stephen Pressfield, 
Robert Green's been doing Zazen meditation for the last for 45 minutes for the last 13 years straight. Nice, nice, nice. And that is his prime. That's he gets up, he primes himself in that, has this state, and now that's when the pros flow for him. And so for three hours he's in that zone. Same thing with Stephen Pressfield. But if they try to write outside of that, they say that they can, but it is much more laborious. It does not flow. But they're still intelligent enough to say, listen, from a tactical standpoint, I'm going to chip away at these four pages and knock it down to two with the wordsmithing and just smooth them over so they can still use that time. But if they had a preference, which they're in a position now to where they had the luxury of doing that. But again, they worked their asses off for years to get to that place. So for those of us that are saying, well, I don't have that luxury, like what you're saying, well, listen, what is one of these things that we've been talking about that you can implement right now? What would that look like? How would you be able to put it into play? And now just that small thing to, to get to the monumental, we start with incremental. And that's the first step. Yeah. You know, uh, it reminds me of, I always have my clients create what we call AM and PM rituals and transitional rituals. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important to your point with uh, Green and Pressfield, um, you know, they have rituals, right? Yeah. And it's so important, whether you're a writer or not, like just to have morning rituals, like open your heart, get your energy moving the physical body, open your mind to whatever the day you need to accomplish for that day. And I have clients figure that out and create them for themselves. And then at the end of the day, it's like, reflect back. What did you learn? Not to beat yourself up, but lessons. Yes. How you bring your nervous system back down, parasympathetic activated, ready for sleep. I do a lot of dream work. How do you prime the mind to work on some cool shit while you're sleeping? Yes. And then I have some clients who, I, for whatever reason, I attract a lot of doctors, surgeons recently. So I have transitional rituals where like, okay, you're just finished like, seven to eight hours of surgery and you're going to be heading home and your mind's still on your surgery but you're you want your mind to be on your family your wife and your kids it's like okay what can you do to shift the mindset shift the body so when you show up home you're like you're ready to engage with them you're not like worrying about the case you just finished up now so transitional rituals are important as well but also the bookends for the day am and pm rituals i i love that idea of the book ending and, and like you say even as warriors right when we put on a gi when we put on a uniform, when we pick up a weapon, that in many ways is this warrior ritual where it says, I'm about to engage in something. So once we do those things, we mentally shift. Yep. Everything clicks into this place. And it can happen in an instant. If somebody attacks our family, we just go into that place. It's not something that we have to premeditate necessarily. But again, just the, that physicality. When we brush our teeth at night before we go to bed, we're telling ourselves, get ready to hit the, hit the rack. Like, this is, this is the time, right? And now we can allow ourselves that ability. And like you're saying, once you build those in, in this very ritualistic way, these bookends, now your body knows, hey, if you take a hot shower before you go to, before you brush your teeth and go to bed, once you're in that shower, you're already starting to allow, yes, you're down regulating, you're allowing yourself the capacity to let all that stuff go. And then again, you can envision all the negative energy or however, what it is, it's just like going down the drain and there's a million different things you could do, right? But that's, that's very much what what that allows us to do. And that comes from just being intelligent enough to say, listen, no bullshit. What would it take? And then out of, out of a place of curiosity, because it used to be, they said that it was lack of information that stopped people from succeeding. But we know now with the internet that there's plenty of information. It's just people aren't applying it consistently enough, or they're always chasing the next shiny object. Yeah. yeah. When I first started doing Bruce Lee's martial arts, Jeet Kune Do, I was learning from different people. And then I got to start learning from Bruce Lee's protege guru, Dan Osanto. Oh, wow. And so That's coming, cool. 
and I'm an instructor under him now. I'm certified. So he's, and for him, he was very much of this idea is like, listen, this worked for Bruce and, and it worked for Bruce when he was 32. <laughs> you know, Marcus, you're 45 now. Marcus, you, you know, you're going to be fifties soon. Maybe you should look into these other things. Maybe wow. this understanding of, and again, like I'm five, nine, I've got short arms. So trying to fight way out with a guy that has a long reach may not serve me. Maybe understanding weapons, maybe getting better at grappling, maybe transitioning in there, maybe being in tight gives me that advantage that these other people don't have because they're not used to that. Yeah. And that is it that you studied under Dan Asante. Wow. It's incredible. And in my book, there's this analogy that he told us what an instructor's camp. He says, Marcus, I'm going to show you seven disarms to the blade from an angle one, just coming right here. Two of these will work great for you. Two of these will maybe be okay. And three of these you will not like at all. <laughs> and again, I'm doing them and it's like, this feels laborious or a little antiquated. And he says, but this is not for you. This is for the people that you teach. <laughs> because the two that work for you, because of the way that you're built, because of your experience may not work for somebody else that's tall, somebody else that's weaker, somebody else that's slender, somebody else that may not have the same kind of experience that you have. But these other five that I'm teaching you will. Nice. And then what else happens as we understand, we blend. Do you do, you do workshops? How are you teaching these days? Martial art-wise, I don't teach directly with martial arts, but when I go do any kind of training for companies, I still use the same analogies. I still okay. use the cool. straight punch. For, for leadership, I'll use the straight punch, and the person kind of blocks. And then if we just keep doing the same thing, it's the definition of an insanity. And I use it from this idea of if I'm trying to convey something from a leadership capacity and this person's not responding. So again, I have to have that pragmatic empathy to feel what they're feeling and say, this is not landing. What's a better way for me to get there? Yeah. I love your use of the martial arts metaphorically in, in our whole discussion today. It's so clear. It's so important. And there was another analogy that he used, which reinforces what Robert Greene's talking about. Robert Greene, The 48 Laws of Power was like this you know, groundbreaking work 25 years ago. And it was kind of contrary to what everybody else was saying at the time, very full frontal, very adversarial, very Machiavellian. Having said that, if you read it enough times, it reinforces this idea that's like, I don't have to live like this, but damn it, I better be aware of people that mm -hmm. think like this, that will operate like this, because they will assassinate me with this stuff if I'm not aware of it. Rino Santo had another analogy at the last camp that we went to where he said, in judo, there were 68 recognized throws. And Olympic-level judoka, use three. Now, they know all the other ones, or they're aware of them, so that they don't get victimized by them. Yeah. But they have an initial throw, they have a contingency, then they have a counter to that contingency, or they go back to the first one. Okay. So, we have techniques that we're good at. Maybe it scores, maybe it misses. Here's my secondary. And if that doesn't work, I can go back to the first one again, or go to the third. But it's not as if we go through throw number one, that missed, new throw number two, but okay, I did this, and now they're trying to do this. It's too late. It's too long. We have to have that dynamic capacity with the violence of aggression as well as sensitivity so that we can be aware of the opportunity before it presents itself or use our own intention to create the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Cool. <laughs> and that's been very much my entire life. Again, being in a bed for months, going through a lot of these things, some of it just sound like flowery bullshit. Yeah. But some of it, did make sense still. Some of it I could still understand and absorb. And then once I started unpacking everything in my life, from my parents' divorce to my own divorce to 
you know, the loss of, of my physicality, I always was very physical. And to have that ripped away from me, it's, um, I was suicidal, but I couldn't act on it. Hmm. So I was, thank God, the last part. That, that's what I'm saying. Like, I was very much a victim for a while. Yeah. But once I came to that acceptance and understood that there's not a lot more I can do, I can either stay here and play the victim for the rest of my life, or I can change my mentality and my mindset and say, what am I going to do moving forward? Yeah. From victim to victor. Yeah. That's absolutely it. And it's, it's easy to say, but, uh, it's, yeah, I, I, not to say this on the air, but I have two guests that I want to recommend to you all to, based on these two topics I'll share with you privately. Yeah. I would love yeah. that. So I know that we're, we're getting close on time here, but, and we could talk for hours and I'm sure that we'll speak again at some other point. Having said that, there are a lot of things that are being repeated today in these spheres that are just not only erroneous, but frankly, they're, they're almost dangerous in some ways. What's the worst thing that you hear continually repeated? That's actually sort of a disservice to people that are trying to get to these other places, whether it be from a biohacking capacity, uh, a mindset capacity, physicality, whatever that may be. I'd say something broad and some, something very specific. And you brought this up, actually, which got me thinking about it. Discipline. Like, I like biohacking. I love the books and trying new things. Out. Like, I, I'll try anything. You know, and I do because I just find it really interesting. And I, I literally, I've been doing that since I was a, a kid. Like, yeah. I used to buy my smart drugs from Europe back in the late 80s until the wow. FDA locked my, my access to them off. Yeah, so a long time. But there are no shortcuts, and there are shortcuts. I think what's better for us is discipline practice. Like, find out what you want to do and just fucking do it every day. Don't fuck around and try to find the shortcut to it. Like, find something that's physically challenging for you. That's a, you know, on a, on a regular basis, mentally, emotionally challenging for you. And you just do those regularly. So be a d disciple of something bigger than yourself and pick those practices that are meaningful to you and, and do them. And not to say you shouldn't biohack. Do it. Biohacking is fun. But like, yeah, discipline matters. But specifically something in the culture, and we haven't had a conversation about this, but psychedelics. Mm. Okay, for me to kind of go down that path. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I did my master's thesis on the therapeutic uses of LSD and MDMA in 97, a long time ago. Wow. Way in front of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool because like w watching how the culture has shifted literally in the last 25 years, it's amazing. Like we are literally a year away, maybe 18 months away from MDMA being taken off the schedule one, maybe psilocybin and and so thank God for MAPS and some of these other organizations that have done yeoman's work. Um, but I have some concerns. I, and I literally spoke on a psychedelic panel this last summer. And for the first time, I was the conservative. Like, I'm usually like, yes, because like 20 years ago, I'm like, psychedelics are really important. And they play this role. Here's what they do. And people are like, that's crazy. They're, you know, they have drugs. And now I'm like, wait, we have to, we have to slow down. We have to be really careful. Because what I'm seeing is these two things emerging, these clinics that are rising, ketamine, presently to people, and or these weekend shamans who like, I took a workshop and I'm a shaman. They live in Austin. Half of them do. <laughs> so let me stick with the ketamine thing and then I'll go to the weekend work, weekend shaman, dude. Ketamine is a powerful drug. And, I, and I've talked to people who work at and participate in some of these clinics and they use the medical model. Like there's very little preparatory work or you even do it at home. Like they send it to you at home and you, and you do it virtually. But there's very little preparatory work. There's very little integration afterwards. And the people who are sitting with you during are not trained in transpersonal psychology. 
this is not a broad statement for everyone. I'm sure there are some people who are open to and study these things and have experiences. But from my understanding, for many of them, they're conventionally trained psychologists or psychiatrists. There's no way they are going to understand some of the states people access. Because if you look at the DSM-4, they're psychotic states. Like you're talking to God or the demons or devils or past life experiences or whatever's going on for you. You know, like shape-shifting machine elder, you're talking to Terrence McKenna. That's crazy sounding from a conventional psychiatric, psychological point of view. It's not crazy sounding transpersonal spiritual perspective. Like, yeah, if you look at the spiritual traditions in every religion, they track these things. It's, it's there in their story. It's like people have these openings and experiences, but we're not trained to help people deal with that. That's a problem. So that can lead people like, what do you do? You have a huge opening and you don't have the support to integrate it and take it into your life. That's one problem. Second problem is these weekend shamans. Like I'm no expert, but I'm licensed therapist. I've been doing this coaching therapy work for 30 years. I've been studying the material I've been in this space. And so I feel a little bit comfortable in this space. And for someone to do like a weekend and they claim that they're shaman and they blow these people open, they blow these the people's psyches open is it's not criminal because it's not against the law, but it's literally, it's, it's, it's irresponsible. It's irresponsible. Thank you. I was trying to think of the word. It's, it's very responsible because there's no support systems for them. When they get home, they, people around them don't know what the fuck that's going on with them. They're just blasted open. They, they don't know how to contain these new energies and new states, these new ways of being. And if you think about it, like you just go to a weekend workshop, like a Tony Robbins, forget the drugs. You go to Tony Robbins, you're blasted open. Cool. You go back to work on Monday or you go back home on Monday, you don't have the support and the, and it closes back down on you. Like you're back to who you were on Friday before you attended the Tony Robbins thing. Maybe, maybe a little bit of opening, at least you had some insight. It's a thousand times more. Like you're so blown open, but you don't have the container to help you. What do you do with this stuff? And I'm, I'm afraid in the lo- in the short run, we're going to have a lot of walking wounded people. Yeah. Who's, if they had trauma, it's going to be blasted open. They're not going to have the capacity to deal with it or the support to deal with it. Even if they didn't have trauma in their past, they're just going to be blown open to these amazing states. They're amazing without the support. So you just have a lot of walking wounded walking around. And that's, I think that's a problem. I couldn't agree more. I mean, again, this, it is a powerful drug. And, but again, with that, with that comes responsibility. And, and as you say, if this person is just literally blown open and they're, they're this open wound, and now you kind of push them in and say, go back to this, the place that you were before, especially if that's a place that they're trying to get away from, right? That's, they're, you're not setting them up to win. You're, you're actually setting them up to fail in many ways. And now there's yeah. even more confusion. There's even more anxiety. There's even more questions. There's even more fear that this thing was supposed to answer the question for them. And all it did was show them a lot more. But now there's always more questions that come from that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's, I love that you're saying that because. And I, I respect Tim Ferriss and all those people that are doing a lot of this work. And I know plenty of people that have done some of these things. But again, at the same time, the medical model originally was this idea of minimum requisite dose. And now let's see what the, the best result can be. And then slowly, incrementally go to these places. You know, it's a it's the scientific method. It's a hypothesis. I believe if I give them 10 cc's of this and this will happen. But again, if you don't have that person that's there with them to support them. And again, even from a physiology standpoint, what if they were asthmatic? What if they have a seizure? What if they stop breathing? What if they have a heart attack? We need a person that is equipped with all these tools in addition to the, these other skill sets that you're talking about that to best serve this person. 
And when we try to scale something or we try to put it into a medical model that has a monetary benefit as part of it, again, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage at best. Collateral damage is, yes, is definitely a good word. And it kind of goes back to the whole co-regulation thing we, we talked about halfway through our conversation. Yeah, like I, I'm hoping that this, I'm not one for like major licensure. I'm, I'm much more libertarian, you know, but so I don't like the state telling people how to live their lives and what they should be doing, but I'm hoping the standards will rise over time and people will start recognizing like, hey, if I'm going to, if I'm going to facilitate these things, I have to understand set, I have to understand setting, I have to understand the physiology of the body and how to work with the body, the energies of the body and, and help people through these non-nervous states. That's my hope at least people will recognize that and start getting trained in those directions. Absolutely. And I know that we're, we're getting close to time here, but I, I always like to ask people like yourself, I've always seen that there's a direct correlation to how much adversity that we can go through, experience, and then eventually work through, and the level of success that we can reach in other areas. I've never seen a person that's very high level in any arena that has not gone through adversity. As a matter of fact, they often seek it out in many capacities. Can you tell us about some sort of adversity that you faced in your life in any area that at the time it felt like you may not get through it? Wow, that's really good. But once you yeah. were through it, you were able to look back and say, I never would have gotten to this place or had this this sort of questioning to get better had I not had that. Yeah, that's really good. Um, but it's, it's more than a minute. Go ahead. I'd sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. got plenty of time. I've got as much time as you have. All right. Yeah. A Kokoro camp aside and through Excel Academy um, aside. So um, I was diagnosed with learning disability as a kid. And before I was diagnosed with learning disability, the argument was I was lazy because I was really smart, but really dumb. So they thought I was lazy. And it's a tough place for a kid to be in, be accused of being lazy. I'm trying. Like, oh. And I had many ups and downs for the education system. I love learning. I hate school. And I was very fortunate to have very, very supportive parents who literally fought the school system on my behalf repeatedly, like repeatedly. And I'll give you just one example of that experience. Do you remember proofs in math? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you're supposed to write them out mm -hmm. line by line by line. I could do them in my head and I could tell the teacher what the, what the answer was. I could not write them out. Wow. You could postulate it in your mind. Yeah. Wow. So as an adult, I look back and go, that's really cool, right? As a kid, it was like, oh, you're cheating. You need to write them out. I can't, like, but here's the answer. You must be looking at the papers around you. Like, no, I'm, I'm not. So the answer was not like, oh, cool. Like, wow, you have this really interesting capacity. Let's cultivate this a little bit more. It's more like you need to go get a tutor so you can learn how to do it the right way. And there are dozens of experiences in school where I, I did it my way. I got in trouble and I had to learn how to do it the right way. And it is the funniest thing. So my father would say, just wait till you get to high school. It's going to be so much different. So just wait to get to college. It's going to be so much different. Wait till you get to your master's program. It's so different. <laughs> and literally every time I just kept running into like this very rigid one size fits all approach. That's why one of the reasons I was in therapy, because I had so much stress and, and the biofeedback, the guided imagery, the meditation, all that stuff was really helpful to get me through this whole process. But I, I came out with kind of two perspectives. One is I can see clearly the dysfunctions in the system. And I spent, I just retired. I still do coaching now. I run groups and work with couples and individuals. And I've been doing that for a long time, but I, I just retired from pol public policy work after 20 years. And seeing the dysfunction in various systems has, was helpful for me. 
working in public policy because I could just pretty easily see the dysfunctions and come up with creative solutions with a team of people like how we could fix this. So seeing the dysfunctions and then learning to step into my own power. Like, you know, when you're 10 and 9, 8, 12, 15, it's kind of hard to fight the system. I did. I did a really good job as best as I could as a kid. But now as an adult, I don't fight anymore. I just do my thing. Mm-hmm. And it, there was a moment where I was like, I'm anti this. I'm like, no, 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 I'm no longer against this system. I'm just pro me. <laughs> and the crew and the crucibles were going through all this stuff to come up with that, that experience. It's, it's empowering and it's powerful. And, and again, from a logistics standpoint, you know, Occam's razor says the simplest path is usually what should we, we should be doing. And that's what you were doing in your mind. It's like, why do I need to postulate all these other things that I could potentially mess up trying to get from this to this, to this, to this on the proof. But yet you still went back into higher ed to learn more. You still pushed yourself to try to get through those places to learn more. And I love, I love learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm always taking classes and working and stuff like that. So that's not, a, that's not an issue. Just schooling. <laughs> <laughs> I love learning. I hate school. <laughs> I think that that's a great place for us to, to put a bow on this. Cool. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work. I look forward to speaking to you again. Where can we learn more about you? Where can we learn more about your courses, your coaching, everything yeah. that you're doing? Yeah, thank you. Uh, MichaelDosterlank.com website. I'm on Twitter, M. Osterlank. I'm on Instagram, M. Osterlank. Facebook and LinkedIn, Michael Osterlank. Yeah, and everybody follow him on LinkedIn and, and look at what he's doing on Mondays with, with JC Glick. Yeah, um, Google. Tremendous stuff. And for those that don't remember JC, he's, he's a friend of mine. He's been on my show a few times. Former Army Ranger commander, TEDx speaker, incredible writer of Army Ranger Meditations. I mean, there are so many things that give us. So again, these are men that have insights from both sides, leading men in battle, understanding that there's a quote that JC's always used, and I've loved it. And he says that there are casualties and there are victims. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very important point to understand the difference that, again, being a casualty, trying to do the right thing but still having the mentality of a warrior to try to pull yourself out of that or to try to return fire to give guys cover that are trying to bring you out of that is very much what we're talking about here. If you're trying anything, there will be wounds, there will be casualties, so to speak, but it's what we do after that. If we choose to keep fighting, that's when we continue to win and elevate. If we just stay in that place and play the victim, then we will be victimized for the rest of our life. At that point, you're not a victim, you're a volunteer, and it's only a matter of time. Right on. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. I appreciate you. I I look forward to talking to you again soon. And I think everybody got something out of this. If you guys didn't get something out of this, you better check your pulse because there was a lot of great (laughs) stuff. Thank you. Bye, buddy. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media.